So as a church, we are currently in a series that we are calling About That Life, where we have been looking at what it means to actually follow Jesus, uh, specifically according to his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So if you've been here over the last three weeks, um, Grant Clark has covered some really significant teachings. He's casted a biblical vision of sexuality for us. He's challenged us to find freedom from lust and to live pure-heartedly. And just last week, he presented us with Jesus' vision on marriage and divorce. So we've covered a lot of ground lately. And now that we've covered those topics, um, it felt important and natural to take this week and look at a life of singleness according to Jesus, which is our topic today. So we won't be direct. We won't be directly in the Sermon on the Mount, but a few chapters ahead in Matthew chapter 19. But before we get into our text, I want you to know um, some of my insecurity in bringing this message today. In our culture, there can tend to be a stereotype around single people, and specifically single women, and I'm not sure I fit that. Uh, I didn't grow up on Disney princess movies. I actually just watched Snow White and Sleeping Beauty for the first time all the way through last year. Thank you, Disney. Um, So for me, my idea of marriage was not uh, shaped by the rom-com, happily ever after, sweep you off your feet, Prince Charming vibes. And maybe yours wasn't either. For me, marriage was almost non-existent in my family of origin. It was actually more common for the single moms in my life, like my mom and my aunts and my cousins, to be in long dating relationships with no intention of marriage, to the point where, There was actually a superstition that if you did get married uh, when a relationship was going really well, you would actually curse the relationship and it might lead to you actually getting divorced and separated. So as you can see why, no one was doing it. Um, Compound this with the additional brokenness of my family of origin and you can probably see why most of my life marriage was not necessarily a big deal. It wasn't something that I necessarily desired. Um, I tend to be more on the end of the spectrum that leans towards being kind of distrusting and wondering if marriage is actually useful or desirable most of the time. So all to say, I have debated most of my life whether marriage was for me or not. Now, some of you might be more like me, and some of you might be more like, can't relate, like because you deeply desire marriage and you have your whole life, and that's totally okay. And the reason we differ is simply because we grew up differently and we have been shaped by our own unique stories. But no matter what your story is, we do all have beliefs around marriage, right? What we believe it is or isn't, why we believe it is or is not important, what we believe it will bring us if we have it and what it means for us if we don't. And the reason I bring this up in a sermon about singleness is because what we believe about marriage directly impacts what we believe about singleness. For example, if you grew up in the Western American church, our high value of marriage may have caused you to feel as if life without a partner was pointless. Or that singleness was a synonym for waiting, waiting for a person, waiting to date, waiting to get married, waiting for your life to begin that whether explicitly or implicitly, you might have picked up the idea that singleness is second rate, and that without a significant other, you are significantly less important to the family of God. That in order to flourish as a follower of Jesus, you need the intimacy and family that comes only biologically, that anything but that would be a waste of your sexuality. 
And anyways, being single requires a special calling, which we're all pretty sure we don't have. Or maybe none of this resonates, because you're here today, and you can't understand why anyone would want to submit themselves to the outdated, oppressive institution of marriage. Your conclusion is that this kind of commitment would actually rob you and limit you of your ability to live your life your way. In this view, which is popular in our postmodern world, no good can come from denying yourself the right you have to gratify every desire that you have. And singleness without promise or commitment or responsibility seems like the perfect plan. But Jesus, he saw singleness neither through the limitations and lies of the first view, nor the selfishness of the second. In Matthew 19, we actually see Jesus cast a vision for a life of singleness that is much richer and whole and satisfying than these alternatives. So some context. So prior to verse 11, where we're going to pick up today in Matthew 19, Jesus has just given a tough teaching on marriage and divorce to his disciples, much like Grant did for us last week. So in light of his teaching on marriage and divorce, catching on to what Jesus implies, which is that marriage is hard and not easy, the disciples aren't like, preach it, preacher man, we're with you. They're like, marriage sounds hard. Are you saying that it's better if we stay single? Jesus, in verse 11, replies, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only to those who, to whom it has been given. We see that Jesus, in his response, does not correct nor dissuade his disciples in their conclusion. And in doing so, he affirms that they understood correctly. Marriage is hard, and it's not for everyone. And what Jesus is saying is that there will be people who hear his message around marriage and they will choose not to marry. They will choose to be single. And this choice, according to Jesus, to stay single is actually a viable option for his followers. The Greek word here for accept can be translated as to make room for or to create space. So if I can take some prophetic liberty for just a moment. Um, my hunch is that as we sit in this room, some of us are resistant to accept or make room for Jesus' teaching on singleness. Most of us don't naturally want to create space for the possibility that God might be inviting us to an extended season of devotion to him, apart from a significant other. And so I would invite you and challenge you today to lay aside your preconceived ideas of what you believe Jesus is going to say in regards to singleness and create space in your mind and your heart for the possibility that an extended season or maybe even a life of singleness can actually be good and whole and satisfying. And if you're here and married, I would invite you to create space in your mind and heart for the possibility that having single people in your life in a significant way might be simpler than you think. So whether you're married or single, please don't tune me out today. This message is for all of us. So back to the text. So Jesus continues in Matthew 19:12. He says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, there are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. So Jesus' model of the eunuch here, which can be simply translated as the single or married person, takes on three different categories. 
First, he talks about eunuchs who were born that way. So Bethany Allen, a preacher and teacher, points out that the wording here, it's, it's a bit cryptic. Um, but most scholars believe that Jesus is referring to those for whom marriage to a member of the opposite sex for life is not a valid option. He's likely referring to people that we would call intersex. And intersex people are a very small percentage of the population. And we understand that now, and they understood it back then, end quote. And so this shows us by Jesus' representation of them here that even though they are a minority, they are just as important to God as the majority. The second category Jesus mentions are eunuchs who were made by men. So this is common in cultures such as like the Greco-Roman cultures where a king or a master would castrate a male slave so he could serve the woman of the house or the harem without any fear of, I'll let you do the math, makes sense, right? You guys got it? <laughs> so the third category, which is the one I want to focus on today, is those who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who choose to live single lives for the sake of God's purposes and glory. And the kind of singleness that Jesus is talking about here is what we would call the celibate life. And celibacy is the abstaining from both marriage and sex. This is the kind of single life that Jesus chose. He stayed celibate for the sake of God's purposes and glory. And in doing so, what he was doing was showing us that singleness is not a punishment or a sentence to an unsatisfied life. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift and another has that. So this in context is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church about marriage. And Paul was single and many scholars believe that he was actually widowed because he had to be married at that time to be part of the Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish religious council that Paul was a part of at the time. And in his singleness and widowerhood, Paul says, I wish that all people were as I am. I wish you were all single like me. Has anyone ever said that to you? Paul had experienced a kind of singleness that he was willing and wanting to call others into. And more than that, it's actually hard for Paul to imagine marriage being a better use of his time than his singleness. And at the end of the verse, he says, but each has his own gift. One person has this gift, another has that. One person has a gift of singleness, another the gift of marriage. One theologian said it this way, Jesus places the single life next to the married life in co-equal dignity. Both are gifts, both have God as their source behind and through all life experiences, and both are protected and celebrated by Jesus, end quote. Jesus and Paul elevated singleness as a gift equal to marriage. So quick sidebar, there can be a lot of anxiety and confusion uh, when we hear that God has called some people to lives of singleness. But notice Jesus' word, use of the word choose. He says there are those who will choose to be eunuchs for the sake of God's kingdom. And this means that to some degree you have a choice. Like God isn't forcing this gift on anyone. Some of you are like, yes. Um, but I also know this, it isn't that straightforward, right? Choosing to pursue dating in order to be married doesn't necessarily mean we get married. Just like choosing to pursue singleness doesn't mean our desires for marriage necessarily go away. 
Both options, the pursuit of singleness and the pursuit of marriage, are commitments that come with their joys and excitements and celebrations, as well as their pains and difficulties and disappointments. And this is important because the temptation can be to compare the highs of marriage with the lows of singleness, elevating one above the other rather unfairly. So again, Jesus tells us that satisfaction in him can be found in whichever path we choose to pursue. And this means that we can find satisfaction in our singleness. Which brings me to my three points today, that we find satisfaction in our singleness when we know who we are, we know where we belong, and we know what we're waiting for. Again, we find satisfaction in our singleness when we know who we are, we know where we belong, and we know what we're waiting for. So let's dive into my first point. We find satisfaction in our singleness when we know who we are. Or in other words, when we're confident in our identity. Now, you might be wondering, at this point, Maria, what do you mean by identity? And I'm so glad you asked. Seriously, guys, every time I preach, I'm like, they ask such good questions. Um, and essentially, identity is the answer to the question, who am I? And so I would ask you, who are you? Maybe you are a female scientist trying to solve cancer, part-time worship leader, and avid rock climber. You have some killer tattoos, incredible hair and style, and you're raising two adorable young kids with your equally stylish husband. Sound familiar? <laughs> Maybe you are someone who's been around this church for almost a couple years now. You're a financial advisor and part of the tech team here at church. You have a beautiful girlfriend, a solid mustache, and you love a good Carhartt t-shirt. You know who you are. Um, maybe you are new to this country. You just got your driver's license, and you're the mother of an adorable blonde child with trademark pigtails who were all concerned and praying that she does not lose her English accent. <laughs> Michelle, when you listen to this, we're praying for you. Um, when we think of identity, we can often think of these very good things that make us unique. I am a sister, wife, aunt, friend, American, celebrity, rich or poor, athletic, book smart, comedic, married, single, and the list goes on. And while these qualities do make us unique, they are not our truest identity. Our true identity is a foundation on which these individual unique aspects of us rest. So these qualities we've mentioned about us are good, but they change. And we should not make them the foundation of our identity. To do so would be to be like the man in Matthew 7, who built his house on the sand, and when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, it fell. To build our house, metaphorically speaking, of who we are on the qualities that make us unique is to build our lives on a foolish foundation. Our true identity is not what we do or where we're from or who you're with or not with. If you are a follower of Jesus, then the truest thing about you is that you are a child of God. And everything else rests on this truth. I was recently chatting to a friend about this sermon on singleness, and they told me about a show called Love is Blind. Any watchers? It's okay, you can raise them high, no shame, no shame. All right, <laughs> it's a few of you, so you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so, so I've never watched it, but I was told that it's a show where singles try to find a match and fall in love and get engaged without ever seeing each other face to face. It's an attempt at letting like the emotional connection be more than the physical one. So for the next 20 minutes, I'm just gonna convince you to apply for the show. Uh, just kidding. Um, but 
just just kidding. But they told me that recently the reality TV dream of finding a fiance came true for two people on the show. I don't know what the, st the statistics of how successful, it, how successful it is, but for this couple, it worked. Um, after days of talking without ever seeing each other, there came the day when they decided to finally seal the deal. They were going to get engaged. When the moment came, I imagine the guy got down on one knee and he popped the question, will you marry me? She, of course, said yes. And the next thing out of her mouth was, I have a fiance. I have a fiance. Her words could lead us to believe that she was more interested in the thing than in the person, more interested in the object than the actual prospect of what a life of devotion to another meant. Her words could lead us to believe that her true concern was a change in her title and the thing that defined her. She was no longer a person without a partner, but a woman to be wed. Her words could lead us to believe that she wanted a romantic relationship, ultimately for what it said about who she was. He was a means to an end for a girl with a plan to find the final piece for a 2022 vision board. And her words are not unique to her. Many of us, if we're honest, want a fiance more for what we think they can give us and do for us than for Jesus' vision of what marriage means. We believe that if we had a husband, then we would be significant. If we had a wife, then we would know we were truly loved. If someone chose us for life, then only then would we know that we were worthy of being desired. We have been deceived into believing the lie that our identity is ultimately defined by whether or not we are chosen, desired, and loved by another human being in a romantic relationship. But the truth is, you do not need to be in a relationship to be chosen, desired, and loved because you are already chosen, desired, and loved by God, by the only person in the universe who truly matters. I mentioned earlier that my extended family and family of origin distanced themselves from the idea of marriage quite intentionally. Um, and marriage, while seen as something that wasn't needed in their view, things like love, acceptance, sense of safety, value, and desire to be wanted and chosen was. So even though marriage was never the goal, my family still had romantic relationships as a means for them to fulfill the very human and natural desires uh, of love and connection that they had. And the truth is that for a time, it worked. And they found those longings fulfilled in their relationships. But in every human relationship, there is brokenness and difficulty, and ultimately, these relationships failed them. And what I realized in watching them experience the pain and loneliness of these broken relationships was that no man can fully give me the love, safety, and belonging that I desire. Yet, I still desire those things. And I have hope for a spouse down the line. But I've had to have my views of relationships and their purpose redeemed. The truth is that even a spouse won't be able to meet those needs wholly and completely and consistently. Only Christ in his completeness can complete me and fulfill me. And the same is true for you. On to my second point. We find satisfaction in our singleness when we know where we belong. So this week, as I was preparing this sermon, uh, I think I felt the weight of this point more than I expected, potentially because the holidays have a way of reminding us that belonging isn't always as straightforward as we'd like. I didn't spend Thanksgiving with 
any of my biological family. Instead, I spent it with my roommates, who are like family, and their family, and part of our church family. And that was the table I wanted to be at this Thanksgiving, partially because I love the people at that table, partially because Jackie's family makes the best sweet potato pie, and partially because, uh, as I've been sharing with you today, biological family is complicated for me. And it's probably complicated for most of us. Um, some of us belong to families that we love to spend time with. Others of us belong to families we'd prefer not to. We'd be happy to avoid our strange Uncle Rick around the holiday season. And other of us are like, I will take Uncle Rick. Um, send him right over. Uh, whatever your situation is, the beauty of the gospel is that God redefines family for us. One of the primary metaphors for the church in the New Testament is a family. And this is one this is why this is one of our core values here at Restored, because when we decide to follow Jesus, he tells us we are adopted as part of this new family. So we'd see this in Jesus' life in Mark chapter 3, when one of the disciples tells Jesus his physical family, his mom and half-brother, are asking for him. And he replies to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus reshapes how we look at family. He expands it from only biologically to also spiritually. Now, this is not a cult thing, like Jesus isn't saying to abandon your physical or biological family, but this is a radical thing. Because what this means that if you are a Christian and you have a physical or biological family, you are not to think of that as your only family. And if you don't have a physical or biological family, you should know that Jesus did not leave you without a family. And this is important because one of the lies around singleness is that saying yes to singleness means saying no to family. And nobody wants that. And Jesus knew that, which is why he gave us the church. He gave us each other. Psalm 68, 6 tells us this. God sets the lonely in families. And this is what we are. And this doesn't happen by accident. Um, this does happen when we open up our homes and our lives to one another. So in preparation for this message, I talked to quite a few single people. And one of the main themes was that they don't want to be alone. They want to be part of the messy meals and TV streaming and bedtime stories that make up a part of the life of married people and married people with kids. But one of the obstacles is they're not sure if there's space in the busyness of ordinary family life for them. In preparation for this message, I also talked to a few married people who would love to be more involved in the lives of single people. But, quote, they couldn't fathom that fun, free, adventurous singles would want to be invited into the ordinary domestic chaos that characterized dinner and bedtimes with kids in their homes. End quote. Not my words. Um, it's possible that there could be a miscommunication of desires here. I think we can all agree that we want to be in each other's lives. And here's what I mean by this. Um, I live with a family of five called the Rogers. Some of you might know them. Um, and they once asked me, when is a moment when you have felt loved by our family? Um, the answer was easy for me. Um, their daughter, Olivia, about two years ago, had gotten an Ikea bed for her birthday. It was a big deal. She was stoked. And they invited me uh, kind of spontaneously to stay over and help build the bed. And we picked up burritos for dinner, built the Ikea bed together, and I had so much fun, and I felt so loved. 
It wasn't planned. The food wasn't fancy. We didn't even use plates. Uh, but I was there, invited into this sacred, simple family moment, and it meant the world to me because I don't have kids or a family of my own to make those memories with. There's so much beauty in unplanned hospitality. And so I've heard it said, and it's something I know many of you here do so well, is don't add things to your calendar, add people. So for reflection, are there things you already are doing that you can invite others into in order to embody this aspect of church as a family? Is there a TV show you want to watch? Meals that you regularly eat at home without others? Rhythms with your kids of going to parks or playgrounds or school pickup? Any Ikea runs and bed building you have planned? In the words of Grant Clark, we're keen. These are simple, sacred moments that we would love to come alongside you in because this is what family does. So some of you might be thinking, I am here for that. Bring on the burritos and bed building. But those friendships don't necessarily fill the void of a romantic relationship, especially a sexual relationship. You might be wondering, if I'm single, what does that mean for my sexuality? This seems totally unfair. Like, if God made me a sexual being, why would he withhold the intimacy that comes with sex from me? These are valid questions. Sex is, is a big deal in our culture, and Jesus' standard for a sexual relationship does not bend or shapeshift in order to adapt to our current cultural preferences. And people could choose not to follow Jesus because of this. Um, a couple of weeks ago, someone in RGC told us a story about how one of his friends had heard the gospel, and his main reason for choosing not to follow Jesus was that he couldn't give up having sex. At least he was honest. Now, here's the thing. Sex does not necessarily mean intimacy. Especially in our day with hookup culture, you can have sex without intimacy. And the opposite is also true. You can have intimacy without sex. You can have deep, intentional, healthy friendships outside of a sexual relationship. Jesus had flourishing, healthy, deep, intimate friendships with his disciples and others, and they were not sexual relationships. So author and pastor Sam Albury in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, says that we need to remember that Jesus willingly became fully human for us. He willingly became a male. He was a sexual human being as we all are, but he lived a celibate lifestyle. He never married, he never entered a romantic relationship, he never had sex. Jesus was not calling others to a standard he was not willing to embrace himself. He wasn't calling singles to sexual abstinence while knowing nothing of it himself. He lived this very teaching. Jesus is our perfect example, the complete embodiment of a whole satisfied humanity, and he embodies that within the limitations of singleness, without sex or marriage. In our singleness, there can be the temptation to compromise our purity for a brief moment of perceived intimacy or pleasure. But remember, you have a savior who is able to empathize with you in your weakness and temptation because he has been tempted in every way just as you are and yet did not sin. The good life that we have been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is not being withheld from you until you're married. It's available to you now. So let your desires be things that drive you not into darkness but towards God. Let them be a reminder that you are not simply waiting for a spouse but for a savior. Let me explain with my third and final point which is that we find satisfaction in our singleness when we know what we're waiting for. So a few months ago, I decided that I was open to the idea of dating, which uh, 
It's a miracle. I, it felt like a big deal. You can laugh, guys. This is like a personal story. <laughs> I'm like, family, you know, we're going to get into it. So uh, it felt like a big deal, mostly because of what I shared at the beginning of today's sermon. It has been a long journey of God having to redeem what romantic relationships can mean and look like for me. Um, and now, uh, even though I know, like, I don't necessarily need this thing, I kind of want it, you know? <laughs> and so I was talking to a mentor and a friend of mine who lives in Colorado, and the topic came up. So, of course, I was like, Lisa, which is my mentor's name, do you know anyone? Like, help a sister out, you know? It's tough out here. So, um, <laughs> and she said, um, has anyone told you about Carlos? Not his real name. Um, and I was like, no, no one has told me about Carlos. And I was really intrigued because in all my years of knowing her, she's never suggested anyone. So she connects me to this guy. We have a lot in common. He loves Jesus. We're talking, sending voice notes. He's cute. We have similar cultural backgrounds. Went to the same discipleship school. He's funny. I'm funny. The chemistry was there. I mean, I was excited, okay? And, sorry, cotton mouth. It wasn't just me. This came up in our staff meeting. Um, one day, and I played one of the voice notes, voice messages he sent, and listen, I have never seen Andy and Grant swoon over a man's voice, but it happened. It happened. He had a great voice, Carlos. So I'm excited. Grant and Andy are excited. Uh, we're on a video call one day, me and Carlos, not Grant and Andy, and it's going great. Um, he asked some really intentional questions. I answer. We're chatting. I'm increasingly hyped, as one would be. And then he says, Cottonmouth, guys. Maria, I don't want to do long distance. Crushing. I know. I know. Pray for him, guys. I know you don't know his real name, but God knows who you're talking about. <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right. But this was tough for me. I was sad. Um, but the hardest part about it was that it would mean I would have to keep waiting. Um, and waiting is hard. Like whether it's 24 hours or 24 days or 24 years. And the reality is that waiting is actually part of the Christian life. And we see this from the beginning pages of scripture. The Bible begins with the wedding of the first man and the first woman that points towards the future hope we have of the day when Christ will marry his bride, the church, and we will be united to him and all will be made right in our world. Marriage on this earth is simply a picture and a reminder and a shadow of that which is to come, which means that when Christ comes, marriage will have fulfilled its purpose. Author Glenn Harrison reminds us that the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. Rather, it teaches that there will be one marriage in heaven between Christ and his bride, the church. Every single one of us will be married one day. And this is what we're really, truly waiting for. And so while we wait, what do we do? Paul answers this question for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put on a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. 
What Paul is pointing out is that one of the privileges of singleness is less distraction and more devotion to the purposes and glory of God. He's not saying that married people have an excuse to be less devoted. He's just saying that practically there are less distractions and concerns often for a single person than a married person. We need single people who in their singleness and in their waiting are not distracted but devoted to using their gifts, talents, and uniqueness for the glory and purposes of God. So do you have clarity on your calling? Do you know how God might uniquely be calling you to devotion to him in this season of singleness? How might you live in your unique context and in your unique life in light of 1 Corinthians 7? Ask God and let the Holy Spirit highlight how you might respond to him today. And to the married, what is the Holy Spirit highlighting to you today and how can you respond to him? Is there space for you to open up your lives and your homes more to those in this church who desire family? And as we end today, I have two more ways that you can respond. One, if these questions feel difficult or you need help discerning the answers to any of them, uh, please reach out to one of our elders or staff team, and we'd love to help you discern and pray through how God might be calling you to respond in light of today's message on singleness. Um, second is I have three books today woo, uh, that we recommend for more on this topic. So the three books are first, uh, Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Albury. And this book is helpful, not just for singles, but for everyone um, in understanding some of the commonly held um, beliefs or myths about singleness in our world. And then the second one is The Sacred Search by Gary Thomas. This one is for single people who want to get married, and it's helpful in helping you discern the why of marriage and romantic relationships. Uh, highly recommend this one. Um, and this one is Single Dating Engaged, Married by Ben Stewart, and the back says, helping you navigate the four critical seasons of relationship. So I feel like all of us could read this one and it'd be great. So there, these are in the back table, um, and you're welcome to take one. They're totally free um, for you to take. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness, um, for your goodness, for your kindness towards us. And God, I just pray that today, um, as we continue in musical worship, um, that you would, yeah, your presence would be with us, that you would speak to us. And God, as we take communion, um, this morning, I thank you for the reminder of your blood shed for us, your body broken for us, and that at your table, God, in your presence, um, we always have a family, we always have belonging, and we always have you. Um, that is the greatest gift that you have given us of yourself. So we love you, Jesus. We're grateful for you. Amen.